you're listening to the Sojourn Montrose Sermon Podcast. To get connected at Sojourn Montrose, visit our website, sojournmontrose.org. We're currently working through Luke's Gospel, and we've been doing that since the Advent season began before Christmas, and now we are in the season of the church known as Epiphany. Um, which is a, a season in which the church awaits the revelation of Jesus. We look to see Jesus revealed more clearly. And so we've, uh, as of last week, we jumped into Luke chapter 6 because there's an extended teaching of Jesus in Luke chapter 6. And we believe that in the teaching of Jesus that he clearly reveals himself and, and that we as a church might experience this epiphany of Christ being revealed. And so this morning... We continue that. Last week, we began looking at the first portion of this teaching, and in it, Jesus explained to his disciples that they will be a people marked by lowliness and humility. At times, they will experience strong opposition and despair. They will be a people who suffer, but they will be blessed, blessed by being shareholders in his kingdom in which they have both present and future promises of his blessing and of his grace. And so this week, with the attitude of lowliness and humility in mind, we will look at a teaching of Jesus that is, for many of us, very familiar. And because it's so familiar, we might be tempted to think that we understand it, or tempted to think that we might obey it, but this morning I ask that we would consider it with an open heart, that we would consider it with lowliness and humility in mind, and that we would maybe see what Jesus is teaching, though very difficult, as something very good. So he begins in chapter 6, verse 27, by saying this to his disciples. He says, but I say to you who hear, Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you and pray for those who abuse you. So when Jesus says, you who hear, he's distinguishing a group of listeners who are actually taking in his teachings. Though there's a large mass of people hearing Jesus, there are probably a select few who are truly listening, who truly want to obey him. These are the ones who are hungry for God's truth, hanging on his every word. And he tells them one of the most difficult teachings in the history of ethics. He says, love your enemies. Love your enemies and do good to those who hate you. Consider that. Jesus is calling the people that that are choosing to follow him to treat the people they are against even those who are against them, with love and with kindness. He's not calling them simply to tolerate them. He's not calling them to peaceably avoid them. These people who they might find morally repugnant, these people who may have abused them with their words or with violence, he's calling them to engage with them in active love. So I ask you to consider this morning, who are your enemies? Who are 
the people who might hate you? Who has cursed you in your life? Who has abused you? For some of us, we're already thinking of groups of people. Large groups of people who we've generalized into the category of enemy. Trump supporters. Hillary supporters. Anti-vaxxers. Pro-vaxxers. Nationalists. Globalists. Catholics. Maybe pro-choicers. Maybe pro-lifers. Maybe you're getting angry even as I say the names of these groups. But some of you aren't thinking of groups of people. You're thinking of an individual. Your mother. Your father. A former friend. An ex-boyfriend or girlfriend or husband or wife. Maybe your neighbor or your boss or your coworker. Maybe your abuser, your attacker, your sibling, your present spouse. For many of these individuals and groups, we have valid reasons to call them enemies. We may really feel as though they hate us. We may really feel that they are evil and ought to be opposed Maybe they've treated us with utter disgrace. Maybe their worldview is dangerous. The call is the same from Christ. Love them. Do good unto them. Jesus is calling those who follow him to a radical ethic of love. And it may feel to us as one that is totally impossible to live up to. It may seem dangerous. If we misunderstand Christ, it it may be dangerous because when Jesus says, love your enemies, does it mean that we, we must shower our opponents with gifts and compliments? Does it mean that we have to invite those with whom we are wont to hold into contempt to join us on our family vacation? No, discretion is certainly called for. Love is an action more than a feeling. We can't always control the way that we feel about someone, but we can and must control the way that we respond to those feelings. Loving our enemies is different based upon who the enemy might be, and it must always come from a posture of lowliness and humility. If I'm, odd, if I'm at odds with a Christian brother or sister in my neighborhood parish, loving them may mean that I point out and address concerns honestly and seriously. Exposing sin and wrongheadedness is loving. But of course, there's a time to speak and there's a time to be silent. The same can be said for the teaching of doing good to those who hate us. A posture of humility is key because we will never be able to do good to those who hate us unless we release the need to be liked by them. If we are owned by an obsession to be liked, we will never do good to the people who hate us but we don't have to buy flowers for them. We simply have to treat them well. What should it look like to bless 
those who have cursed us or pray for those who have abused us. If we looked into the Psalms, we would see a lot of times King David praying out to God that God would bring about justice upon the wicked, that he would be vindicated. So that's one way. But then if we looked into Acts, we would see Stephen, the church's first martyr, praying that God would forgive the very people throwing rocks at him until he died. There are times when both of these ways of praying and blessing our enemies is valid. And they're not necessarily mutually exclusive. We can pray for God to vindicate us while still praying that he would deal mercifully with our enemies. Even mercifully with those who have committed violence against us. We can hate evil, and we should, while still placing the burden of vengeance and justice upon God rather than ourselves. And that then gives us the freedom to love and to pray and to bless the evildoer. Jesus continues, he says, To the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you, and from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. The same ethical principle is continuing in these verses. But the strike on the cheek is a physical insult. Jesus is not telling people to willingly be victims of domestic abuse without report or fleeing. Nor is this a verse that we can point to to support political pacifism. Jesus is telling his disciples to withstand insult and physical disrespect from enemies with a resolve to resist seeking retaliation and vengeance. Not to be victims of heinous crimes, but to be lowly and humble against the insults of a wicked world. Jesus is not telling us that we should advertise ourselves as vulnerable suckers to thieves and con artists or panhandlers. He's simply telling us that suffering on behalf of the good word of God will involve something lost. A physical insult is dignity lost. Personal belongings being stolen, is material needs lost. Giving generously to those who desperately need financial support is financial security lost. Lost without expecting anything in return, for this is Christian suffering. In essence, Jesus is calling his followers to freely give love, good deeds, blessings, and prayers to any and everyone, even those people we listed earlier, while withstanding loss as a result of any and everyone who may come against us. Relational dignity, material possessions, and wealth are not to be of ultimate value for the disciples of Jesus. And if they're taken away by another man or another woman or a group or a government, 
than the Christian, who we learned last week is a stakeholder in God's kingdom, is no worse for the wear. No less blessed by God in their worldly poverty or relational shame. He summarizes his ethical teaching with something that we are very familiar with. The golden rule. He says, and as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. In this context, the rule is far more meaningful and deep than it probably was in our nurseries growing up. In light of all of these things, would I really want to treat people lovingly who have not treated me well? Maybe not. But would I want them to treat me lovingly? Even if they dislike me, or even if I have failed them? Certainly. Certainly I would. Jesus is making a point here. He's he's pointing out that we as people desire unconditional love from others, even though we're predisposed to put all sorts of condition upon our love for others. Jesus knows that we're prone to wanting all of our good deeds, all of our loving words, and all of our acts of generosity to be repaid equally and quickly by those who receive them. Yet he calls us to treat people in the way that would most bless us, regardless of reward. Be loving toward others simply because you know that you desire love from others. Do good unto others simply because you know that you want others to do good unto you. Bless and pray for others. Forgive others simply because you would want those same things to be done for you. And there's a tension here that Jesus is about to truly expose. He says, if you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. Now when Jesus says sinners, he's not referring to sinners in the way that we may think of all people as sinners. He's thinking of people who have rejected God's truth. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great. And you will be sons and daughters of the Most High, for He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. We might be sitting and thinking, but Jesus, that's not fair. That's not justice. Shouldn't we stand up for ourselves? Why should I love the unlovable? Why should I do good to the wicked person? They don't deserve it. They deserve to be rejected, punished, exposed for who they really are. They don't deserve my love, my generosity, or my prayers. They've hurt me. They've lied about me or to me. They believe dangerous things. They promote wicked ideas. That's true. 
Some of us in the room have had the same group of people or the same individual in our head since I mentioned it earlier. That person or group for whom we cannot give love. The person or group whom we cannot forgive. And you might be saying, I can love my friends. I can do that. I can even love strangers. Generally, I'm a nice person, but I won't be hurt again. I won't be a victim again. And I certainly won't pursue active love towards that person or towards that group of people. Some of us are beginning to squirm in our seats feeling defensive. Listing the reasons in our head or on our notebooks why we shouldn't love our enemies. They cheated. Maybe they lied. Maybe they hate you. Maybe they committed the most heinous crime toward you or someone you love. Maybe they hurt your family. Maybe they've excluded you. Maybe they've abandoned you. Maybe they didn't get consent when they should have. Maybe they didn't care. Maybe they hurt you. Maybe they support all sorts of immoral causes. Maybe they have unbecoming habits. Maybe they make you uncomfortable. Make you feel unsafe. What's at the root of this? What's at the root of of our inability to forgive, our inability to love our enemies? I, I think there's two big reasons that we find it nearly impossible to love our enemies well. And the first one is a human reason, one that has existed since God created Adam and Eve in the garden, and that is that we as humans who are made to be like God like God, hate evil, and love justice. We want justice. We can't just let people get away with evil. Society would break down. And as those who were created to be like God, we desire justice and goodness because God is just and He's good. But as those who are sinful and lacking in wisdom and perspective, we often don't know how justice and righteousness ought to be carried out. As humans who desire to be gods ourselves, we often think that justice should be taken into our own hands. We desire to make up the list of what should and should not be forgiven. Groups of people that should and should not get our love. Actions that should and should not warrant grace. People who deserve and don't deserve our time, our attention, our care, our prayers. We're bent toward seeking vengeance. We're bent toward jealousy and hatred and meanness under a thinly disguised veil of desiring justice. But what's the second factor? What is the second key thing that is keeping us from loving our enemies and from forgiving those who have done wrong to us. And I believe it's because we've often become students of our culture more than we're students of God's Word. We've received two cultural mandates. One is to make those who are not like us or who do not think like us out to be wicked monsters. Do we not see this all the time? That party is evil. That worldview is heinous. 
that pundit is undefendable. We are taught to make those who are not like us and who do not think like us out to be wicked monsters. And the other cultural mandate is that we are taught to cut toxic people out of our lives. I cannot tell you how many times I've seen that on Facebook or Instagram or BuzzFeed or wherever it might be, but that you should cut toxic people out of your life. That is maybe even some of our New Year's resolution, that I'm going to cut all these toxic people out of my life. We've learned to find comfortable echo chambers in which we only have to hear opinions that we already agree with. To surround ourselves with people who already share our interests. To be committed to causes with other people who are committed to those causes. And we can simply uninvite, unfollow, and mute our enemies. And we do this because we've been taught to believe that places in which we might hear or be exposed to thoughts or ideas or people who make us uncomfortable are actually unsafe. Let us be clear. It is not unsafe to be uncomfortable. And the world around us tells us that we should cut these toxic people, whatever that means, out of our lives because they are going to be the ones who ruin our happiness. And our culture is surely going to tell us that our happiness is the most important thing that we can have. It's the ultimate goal. It's your primary human right to be happy. We see this in movies. In many, if not most, movies that you watch, there are characters who are evil, abusive, or obnoxious. And the best part of the movie is when the evil king, or the wicked stepmother, or the bully, or the bad guy is put in their proper place. When justice is served. It's the part that we're looking forward to most. When those whom the movie teaches us are bad are put in their place. We enjoy this because we crave justice and vindication and revenge. And we also re- resist loving our enemies because we're more quick to, deal, to learn how to deal with our enemies from a movie which appeals to our basic desires than from our Lord who teaches us to resist our basic desires. We're students of the culture, which tells us to hate our enemies and to seek vengeance, rather than to love them and seek reconciliation. A culture that tells us to rid our lives of toxic people and to find a safe and comfortable place to live and think and opine. But Jesus, according to verses 32 through 36, does not value what our culture values. He says that his disciples will be known by not cutting toxic people out of their lives, but by their lives being devoted and wholeheartedly for the cause of the toxic person. We're not to cut them out of our lives, we're to befriend them and love them and do good unto them. Christians should be known for befriending the wicked, loving their attackers, praying for their abusers, serving the dirty, and being hospitable to all. 
There's nothing distinguishing about love if it is given only to those whom we deem deserving of it. And Jesus has said that primarily his people will be known by their love. He's laying the groundwork here for what loving really means. For the kind of love that his people will be known by because true love is unconditional and forgiving and merciful. We hear that every time we go to a wedding in 1 Corinthians is read. It's patient and kind and humble. It does not boast. Paul says that true love is the more excellent way. And it is because it's the way of Christ. True love is the excellent way because it's the way of the most excellent one. And Christian ministry will be marked by over and over again entering into messy and unsafe places full of messy and unsafe people that God's true love might be displayed clearly. And in it we will likely suffer loss. But we have a future promise of rest and safety in God's kingdom so we can sacrifice both rest and safety now. We fight through thorns and brambles in hopes of establishing God's peace amidst discomfort, amidst evil, and amidst opposition. I mentioned last week that that the most remarkable thing about Jesus as a teacher is that he embodies all of his teachings. And this week's teaching is certainly no different. In Paul's letter to the Romans, if we were to read chapter 3, what we would find is that all people have sinned against God. And that in the eyes of God, all people are unrighteous and evil. Chapter 5 tells us that even they are God's enemies. That they hate Him. But he writes that the church is made up of people who were formerly the enemies of God and now made friends of God through the love of God. So while we may have varying definitions of who is our friend and who is our enemy, God found that all people were his enemies. He found an entire world full of people who resisted him and hated him and disobeyed him and dishonored him. It began when Adam and Eve ate the forbidden fruit and it continues today that we disobey and disbelieve thousands upon thousands of times. We hope to become gods like he is rather than trusting him to be the God who he is. There are none who have believed and obeyed him perfectly. None who have never rebelled against his authority. All of us have been the enemies of God. Yet if we went back to chapter 2 of Luke, back to the Advent season, what we would remember is that there's an angel who shows up in a field and tells some shepherds that there is good news of great joy for all people, that Jesus Christ has been born the Savior of the world. That, That into a world marked by enemies, haters of God, He entered in to bring them good news of great joy. He entered in to save them and to love them and to care for him. 
Jesus loved his enemies. He dined with them. He taught them. He healed them. He prayed for them. He did good to those who hated him. He blessed those who cursed him. He prayed for those who abused him. All we have to do is keep reading in Luke. All of this ultimately shows through in his death and in his resurrection. Before he was arrested, Jesus prayed for his enemies and his tormentors and his abusers. But he prayed for them as his future followers. He prayed that they would be unified and united under his gospel ministry of loving enemies. On the cross, Jesus became a curse that we might become the blessed people of God. That's a whole other level of blessing those who curse you. On the cross, he bore punishment for our sins that we might be forgiven. He was battered, he was bruised, bloodied, he was mocked, he was hated, and he did not retaliate. He did not seek vengeance. He did not utter curses. He suffered patiently and humbly and lovingly as a lowly servant and through the death and resurrection of this sinless one, Jesus Christ, God's sinful enemies have become his friends and children through faith. Does that seem unjust? Does it seem unfair? Maybe it isn't right that we should be forgiven if we've truly been so evil and hateful toward God. It's almost scandalous. It makes us uncomfortable. Doesn't God desire justice? Didn't we already say that? Doesn't he hate evil and love good? And the answer is yes. God loves justice and good and hates evil and injustice. So he punishes sin fully with perfect wrath and hatred for it. But he's put forth his son, Jesus Christ, to bear that curse, to bear that wrath, to bear that hatred towards sin. On the cross, justice was served fully. All sins which will be forgiven were forgiven as God enacted justice upon his son so that God's enemies might become his friends. And if you trust in Christ for your salvation, if you worship him as Lord, then you are justly counted as forgiven based solely upon what Christ has done for you. There's no more wrath reserved for you. There's no more repaying for your evil to be done. You were once an enemy, but now you have been made the blessed friend and child of God. And this is good news of great joy. It's the best news. That though we were enemies, we've been loved fully, saved faithfully. But but if you don't hope in Christ, God still desires justice. If you don't believe in the glorious resurrection as a means to new life, if you don't believe that Jesus is the Son of God and the universe's present King, then God's justice will still certainly be served. It will be served in an eternity of experiencing wrath 
and the just punishment for being an enemy of God. For disbelieving his word and way that is the true word and the true way. So for those who believe and for those who do not believe, full justice and full righteousness is certainly going to be served. But now you're thinking, but didn't the angel say that, there, that it was good news and great, of great joy for all people? Yes, that is what the angel said, and he's right. Jesus' salvation is available to all people. Of every group, of every nation, of every race, of every tongue, of every political affiliation. But that does not mean that every individual will come to believe in Christ and receive all of his benefits. But this morning, you have the opportunity. You have the opportunity to believe that Christ is Lord and that he is enough to satisfy justice and to make you a friend of God. You have an opportunity to believe that though you are God's enemy, he loves you to make you a friend. That he wants to call you son and daughter. That he wants the work of his son to be satisfactory on your behalf. This is the same good news of great joy that the angel brought to the shepherds that I bring to you today, that Jesus Christ has come to the world to save sinners, that God has chosen to love his enemies and to forgive those who have done wrong against him. And as Jesus explained, true love does not expect repayment. And so God does not expect that we repay him in return for his love and affection, only that we would be moved by it. Only that we would worship Him fully and offer our lives to loving people in the ways that God has loved us so that they can also experience His love. We ought to love the Lord our God and love our neighbor as ourselves. Both our neighbors who are friends, our neighbors who are similar to us, and those who we might call our enemies. Jesus brings good news for all people. And we must trust that. And we must also trust that God's justice is sure, which means that that those of us in the room who are harboring pain and resentment and unforgiveness can and must let go of that as a result of Christ's forgiveness toward us. When we truly understand how deeply God has loved us and how fully we have offended Him, we will understand that we are also able to turn and forgive and love and let go. When we understand that God's justice will be served either on the cross or in eternity, then we can release the desire to enact justice ourselves. We can pray for our enemies that they would turn their eyes upon Jesus and allow the justice of Christ's cross to be sufficient for them so that they don't have to experience the full weight of their evil. Because we don't have to experience the full weight of our evil. That doesn't mean that the road to forgiveness won't be longer than we want it to be. It doesn't mean that forgiveness is not difficult Forgiveness is certainly difficult. In fact, nothing will show us more clearly that forgiveness is difficult than 
a bloodied and forsaken and rejected and tormented Christ. For that is the cost of forgiveness. And it's a difficult one. But it has been paid. It has been accomplished. And so as we seek to forgive those who have wronged us, we trust that Christ's Spirit who dwells within us as believers will surely help us. We must seek forgiveness. We must release hatred. We must trust that God will be just and that His vengeance will be served. And this also means that that some of us in the room might feel that we are the ones who need the forgiveness. We might feel that we're the ones who are hated and rejected, maybe as a result of our past sins or maybe as a result of a present circumstance. But what we can believe is that the approval of men and women is nothing compared to God's approval, which is freely given through the work of Jesus. To have a friend in God is to have a full life of friendship. You can belong to God's family and experience His grace through His people where you will find friends. And you can pray for those who hate you and reject you and who may never forgive you with the hope and the confidence that the forgiveness of God is good enough, that it's perfectly satisfactory. And then that sort of forgiveness, that sort of confidence should be what marks us as a church. A people quick to love our neighbor, a people quick to serve those who have done wrong to us, a community marked by love that does not ask anything in return. In either case, whether we need to forgive or we need to be forgiven, we do not have to bear the burden of exacting justice or earning love for ourselves. We're responsible for loving people, knowing that God has loved us, that justice has been served, and that love has been paid for even though we were God's enemies. We can love all people and we can suffer for it, church, knowing that Christ suffered a great deal to love us and to invite us into his ministry of a love marked by suffering and lowliness and humility. Jesus Christ has come into the world to save sinners and that is good news of great joy for all people. And he did not just come for people whom we like. He did not just come for people whom we think deserve his love, who we think deserve his salvation, or who we think are capable of believing in him. Jesus Christ is the only Savior for all people. For liberals and conservatives, for terrorists and pacifists, for men and for women, for addicts, and moderates, for perverts and for prudes, for the poor and for the rich, for both abusers and their victims, for the powerful and the powerless. He is the Savior. He has come for you, and He has come for me. He's come for our friends and for our enemies. And so let us be a people 
who love people expecting nothing in return except that God's love would change their lives. The God who asks nothing in return from us. Let's pray. Father, please make us a more loving people, a people more marked by your grace and your forgiveness and your love for us. And for those of us who have yet to believe that that though we were enemies, we can be made friends through your broken body, through your shed blood, through your glorious resurrection, would you give us faith this morning to trust it, that we would be changed? Even in the table, would you transform us to be more like your son in your self-giving love? We love you and we thank you for this good news of great joy that we have been loved and forgiven and called friends rather than enemies. Would it be the thing that marks us for decades and even eternity to come? And would you use that good news to transform this neighborhood through your love? using us in that process. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.